Today's reading will be from Ephesians 3, verses 7 through 13. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Brian. Good morning, Redemption. My name is Frank. If you're new here, I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Arcadia, and we're glad you're here. Uh, other than that, I'm going to just dive right in. So uh, we've been going through the book of Ephesians, and what Brian just read was Ephesians 3. We've been going verse by verse. So uh, he just read 3, um, 7 through 13. Uh, over the next two weeks, we're going to split that up. We're going to look at 7 through 10 today, and then 10's kind of an overlap verse. So next week, we're going to look at 10 through 13. Uh, so our, our message today is just going to go through uh, 10. And I want, you, I want to just point out, I'm not going to reread uh, the passage at any point, uh, but I do want to point out one thing before we dive into the five things that I want to talk about in this passage. Um, and that is, first of all, you, you see this language in there, I think, if you read it and reread it, it starts to pop out at you. Um, Paul says that uh, his ministry is to proclaim the unsearchable riches, and then the job of the church is to proclaim the manifold wisdom of God. These words, unsearchable and manifold, are interesting in that they are, uh, I believe, and many commentators believe, um, Paul's attempt to articulate that which really cannot be articulated in the, in, in the human language. Uh, the, the unsearchable riches of Christ, uh, he, he can't even come up with the word to define what that means. That's his best shot at coming up. We can't find all of the riches of Christ. We, we taste and see that God is good through Jesus Christ, but we'll never know the totality of his riches in, until the new Jerusalem comes. And so Paul is just searching for a way to be able to articulate the depths of, of how beautiful Jesus is. And then the manifold uh, wisdom of God. That word translated manifold uh, literally means comprehensive or complete. There is no nook and cranny in the universe that is, that is not subject to the wisdom of God, that we cannot apply the wisdom of God in. And so th this is, again, language. Uh, Cody and I have both talked about this during this time in Ephesians. This is language that is exalting God through Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's language of praise and worship once again. He is praising and worship the work that God has done through Christ. So I saw five things that I wanted to talk about uh, in, in this passage, these, these four verses, 7 through 10. Uh, and, and they're just listed very quickly. They're power, uh, hubris and humility, the beauty and simplicity of Paul's ministry, the church, and then the question of the heavenly places. So let's just start with number one, his power, Christ's power, the question of power. And I'll spend uh, most of my time on this one. 
Uh, we're talking about the fact, and, and gosh, you, uh, Tina's up here, to, and, and I'm thinking, here you go. These, all of life interviews that we do every Sunday, uh, I don't script them. I didn't come up with the questions. I don't review the answers that the people are going to say. I, I, don't, I don't go to them and say, it would be really helpful for my sermon if you would press into this. And, and then Tina gets up here, and she starts talking about how this is only done by Christ's power. And I'm sitting there going, see? <laughs> it's true. It is absolutely true. I, I, I was just overwhelmed in that moment listening to her uh, give that testimony. Um, and, and we keep pounding on this because Paul keeps pounding on this. We're preaching what the text says. Paul keeps coming back to the fact that it isn't him, it isn't us, it is Jesus, it is God. And it's a clear and substantial theme throughout the Bible. You look in the Old Testament, it's the same in the Old Testament. It was all God's power. You look in the New Testament, everything points to the power of, of the Father, the Son, and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Paul was made a minister of the gospel, and he ministers the gospel all by the empowering work of God. And we talked about this last week. This wasn't even Paul's idea. That's the best part of this. He didn't sit around and come up with a vision statement for his, for his ministry. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't plan anything. This, none of this was his idea. And in order to do what God had for Paul, Paul never could have done it under his own power. In fact, if you read history and you read about Paul and you begin to understand him, you realize that Paul had so many physical and mobility constraints that it's, it's as though God said, I am going to pick and use Paul because then it's going to be obvious that it's me and not Paul. He picked the most unlikely person to be the greatest minister because that just points to God. It just points to how, how powerful he is. Uh, another one of these stories, I mean, a couple weeks ago, on a Sunday night, I got to preach down at Florence Prison in, in North Unit. They allow me, the prison allows me to come in and preach either Saturday night or Sunday night one time a quarter. And the reason they only allow me in one time a quarter is because I visit guys in, in the prisons. And by the way, here, kind of a prison theme this morning with alongside ministries. Uh, and so this gets set up about every three months. For, so I have three months to think about this and prepare. And, and three months ago, when David called and gave me the date, uh, April 22nd, I, I put a note in my phone, do Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Now, how many of you put notes to yourself in your phone and then forget all about them? How many of you do that? Okay, I do that too. And over time, I forgot about that note, but I was thinking about April 22nd coming up, and I was thinking, I should do the book of Philemon, or maybe I should do John chapter 13 and the whole foot washing thing. And then I even called up David, and I checked with him, and I said, has anybody done Philemon or John 13 lately? And, and, and if so, let me know, because then I'll know not to do those uh, passages. Well, the day before the service, it was uh, Saturday morning, and I was looking at my phone, and I, I saw the note about Luke chapter 4. It's the temptation of Jesus. Jesus is out in the wilderness. It's been 40 days. He's been fasting, and Satan comes. And, and I thought to myself, I, I don't know. That just, it just seems kind of like a hackneyed passage. They've probably heard that passage over and over and, and, and I just wasn't that excited about it. I think Philemon would be better. But the Holy Spirit worked on me. And the next thing I knew, I was putting together an outline 
for Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. So I go down Sunday night and I preach. The service down there is 90 minutes long, but they only did four songs. They usually do like 10 songs. They only did four songs, and then I preached for uh, 30 minutes. And I was absolutely blown away by what happened during the service and what happened after the service. Um, there was, there was uh, now let me tell you something, when you, when you preach in prison, um, it's a little bit more boisterous than preaching in Arcadia, you just need to know. I, and I'm not, this is just an observation, not a value judgment, but by comparison, Arcadians tend to sit on their hands during church, that's not true down in prison, but they were way more boisterous than I've ever seen them in, in my life. There was this constant chatter back to me. I would ask a rhetorical question, and they would line up to answer it, man. They, they weren't going to just take it as a rhetorical question. There was eye contact like I had never had before. Guys were leaning forward in their chairs, there were people yelling every now and then, word of life, word of life. And that's not me. That's Luke. That's the gospel uh, of, of Jesus. And then after it was over, because we had 40 minutes before they had to get back because the service was so short, uh, a bunch of us just sat around at the picnic t benches and, and had a conversation. We just talked together. And they kept telling me, they wanted to come and talk to me about this. They kept telling me about the conversations and the Bible studies that they were having right that weekend about every single issue that I covered in Luke chapter 4 during that sermon. And the one thing they kept saying to me was, Frank, this ain't no coincidence. This ain't no coincidence. We had questions about this stuff, and this was so helpful to us. This is God working through his spirit in your life and in, in our lives. It was just... Do you not think the Holy Spirit knows what he's doing or what? He knows what he is doing. And, and I need you to understand. I, I understand my role here. I am called. I am called to work, to prepare, to study, to shepherd, to love, and to serve. But the minute I begin to think that this is my doing, I am lost, I am frustrated, and I cannot sustain any meaningful ministry or service. I will kill myself. That's just the truth. And I just find that, that God's promises about his power and glory are true. It's him. And I should rest in that. And by the way, y'all should rest in that. That is really good news. Now, I know these last four weeks in Ephesians have been really challenging. I, I got that figured out. We have pressed on some things like we have never pressed before. Guess what? Here comes some more challenges in the midst of this. Here's one of our problems. And, 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 and again, I would, I would, this is a broad stroke. I understand it's a generalization, but we would fit into this category. The, the, one of the biggest challenges, one of the biggest problems in the American evangelical church is that our, our Christian faith is mostly manifested through pretending and performing. Through pretending and performing. Some of us put on airs of pretension, acting piously and papering over who we really are in an effort to play at Christian faith instead of just letting, it, letting our hair down, letting people understand who we are so that, so that God can work. Or... We take the other tact. We roll up our sleeves and we get to work. And we do it quite visually so that notice, people will notice our righteous performance. Some people call that performance arena Christianity. And all of us, I think, have been guilty of that as well. We pretend or we perform. And the problem with both is that they are all done under our power, under our management, under our control, with the chief sin of pride right at the heart of it, 
and are therefore totally unsustainable. Pretending and performing unsustainable. You see, the smart money is not on us. If you're a betting person, and, and I know this is church, you shouldn't, probably shouldn't bet, but the, the smart money is not on us. It's on the power of the resurrected Christ by and from the Holy Spirit. Number two, Paul says he's the least of the saints, and I would describe this as uh, the problem with pride or hubris and the virtue of humility. Uh, we live in a culture that is in love with hubris. We just are. In our world today, humility is often seen as a weakness or even a vice, and some parents uh, try, to, try to manage that inclination towards humility, if there is any in their children, manage it right out of them. Even our school systems are trying to manage humility right out. It's all about pride. And pride is seen as a virtue. Pride is seen as a strength. Uh, hubris and arrogance in our, in our culture is celebrated. And if you're not sure about that, all you got to do is, is, is watch TV, uh, look at social media, if you don't think this stuff is celebrated, you just need to look around. Well, guess what? It was the exact same in Paul's day. So many of us have this idea that the things that Paul wrote in his day were acceptable and, 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 and well thought of in his day. People have a hard time imagining that Paul is pressing on people in his day just the way it presses on us today. In his day, humility was seen as a weakness and a vice. And pride and hubris and, 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 and arrogance was exalted as, they were exalted as virtues. And, and we also need to understand here, uh, Paul is not engaging in false humility here. Some people have accused him of engaging in false humility in order to get attention. He's not engaging in false humility, and the reason is because he, know, he fully knows God, and therefore he fully knows himself. One of the best ways that we can fully know ourselves is not to concentrate on ourselves, but rather concentrate on who God is. And once we know who God is, we can more easily access who we really are. Paul understands who he really is. He's a sinner saved by grace. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, he admits, I'm the worst of sinners. And, I, and I've literally, I've heard people say, you know, Paul kind of has low self-esteem. No, he doesn't. Paul has high self-awareness, and all of us could use that. And not only that, uh, he knows that he spent a number of years as the chief persecutor of Christians. Martin Luther, the great reformer, uh, once wrote this, the whole of the Christian life is repentance. The whole of the Christian life is turning from our sin, turning from us, and turning toward God. And repentance takes humility. We can't repent without humility. And Paul was a world-class repenter. And so the question has to be asked, how are we doing? When it comes to repentance and humility, how are we doing? Are we self-aware? Or do we have uh, blind spots of pride that with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we are willing to wrestle down in our lives? Paul's admission here is one that we all need. In the face of our sin, we are redeemed by a ruthless and radical grace. A ruthless and radical grace. Number three, Paul's ministry. We talked a lot about this last week. I'll mention it again. I'm going to use different words, though. Here it is. Paul's ministry was to preach to those people who made him most uncomfortable 
And for those that he was the most comfortable with, he was to preach that which makes them uncomfortable. So no matter what, he was in trouble constantly in whatever he was doing in his ministry. And do you think that Paul could have done what he did and be who he was supposed to be if his highest value in life was comfort? The answer is no. It's not a trick question. We have a problem. We just love to stay in our little bubble. We are all bubble boys and bubble girls. That's what we are. And we struggle with this. You, you, except Tina. Tina was willing to push outside of that bubble and go and do this alongside ministries with absolutely no understanding of what was going to happen in the midst of that. Uh, the, listen, the gospel is decidedly uncomfortable. Everybody, look up here. If you get nothing else out of today, look up here. And by the way, the good stuff is yet to come even. That's why we have the three chairs up here. But here you go. Look up here. Okay, you got to hear this. You need to understand, I need to understand, the essential centerpiece and focal point of our faith is a rabbi who was beaten, unfairly tried, and then executed. How do you and I get comfort and convenience out of that? How do we get comfort and convenience out of that? I, I just, I, I'm sorry, I, I beat this, I beat this like a drum, I know, and I'm sorry. Uh, one of my favorite theologians is Tom Hanks, well, at least the characters that Tom Hanks plays. And, and I'll just hit you again, this, uh, the, the movie A League of Their Own, by the way, he's got some great stuff in uh, Castaway too, but uh, in A League of Their Own, <laughs> he's got the best player in the league, uh, Gina Davis, playing Dottie Hinson, and he's the manager of the team, uh, Jimmy Dugan, and Dottie decides to quit right before the World Series. And so he runs over to her and he said, what, what, are you, what are you doing? And she says, I'm quitting. My husband's home from the war, I'm quitting. And he says, why would you quit now? And she said, Jimmy, it just got so hard. And what does he say? He says, it's supposed to be hard. If, if it wasn't hard, then everybody would do it. The hard is what makes it great. Far too many people come to this Christian faith thinking this is where they're going to find ease and comfort, no more tension, no more friction. Read Scripture. If you don't find tension in Scripture and in, uh, uh, tension and friction in Scripture, then you're not reading it, because there's all kinds of tension and friction in there, and that's what makes us grow, and that's what helps us know ourselves. Number four, the church is called to make this mystery known. That's what we're called to do. Now, in case you were wondering what the mission of the church is, I'll tell you first what it's not. It's not a social club. It's not a network for businesses. It's not a consumer product or a vendor for spiritual goods and services. And it's not that these things are necessarily bad. We make connections at church. I help make connections. I, I like that. We have fun. Generally, we have fun with each other. We appreciate good music and good communication, but those things are ancillary to the mission of the church. We are to proclaim the gospel, love and serve our neighbor, and we are to be united together with our brothers and sisters in Christ regardless of our image-bearing differences. That is the manifold wisdom of God. Unity and reconciliation regardless in Christ regardless of our image-bearing differences. And Paul continues his quest to make readers know that reconciliation and unity are high values of the gospel. This is the joyous work of the church, to make his manifold wisdom known, to proclaim that to everybody. Again, I'll do, again just I'll say, these last four weeks, uh, they have been really challenging. But in the midst of that, the elders uh, 
so that would be myself, Cody Kimmel, Josh Prather, Steve Wheeler, uh, Jim Moreland. In the midst of that, we have had some amazing conversations, some conversations that don't take place unless we start to push on the idols that we have in Arcadia and the idols that we have in our own hearts. And these, these conversations have been very difficult. There's been, uh, at times, there's been friction. Um, that, that there's been questions, there's been uh, communication that hasn't been received as well as maybe it could be, but in the midst of that, we come together in the spirit uh, of Christ, the resurrected Christ and the filling of the Holy Spirit, and, and we're able to have these conversations, reason together in Christ, and, and come to unity and reconciliation in the midst of that. And that has been good for our church. That has been a blessing uh, to us. Believe me, our dance cards have been full, but it's been a good full. It's been a good full for us. And then finally, last, in the heavenly places. What, what does that mean? Okay, it, okay the way I read, in, years ago, the way I would read is I'd go by that and I'd go, I have no idea what that means. I don't care. I'd move on. Well, it's in Scripture, so it must be important. Okay, here you go. Believe it or not, in the heavenly place, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, this is the angels in heaven. The angels in heaven are watching what's going on, and they are encouraged by the prevailing work of the church. There were many pre-Christian Jewish texts that Paul would would have been aware of that talk about the the joy of the angels, the rulers and authorities in heaven, when they see God's people doing God's work. Paul was aware of those texts. And maybe it's a little bit cheesy, but it's like there are cheering section, our fans, They love to see God's work through God's people for God's glory. But it's not just that. The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Uh, This is not heaven. These are the heavenly places. There are also demons in the heavenly places, in the spirit world. And the demons are watching this as well. And for them to see God's work through God's people is a debilitating, demoralizing, and dispiriting spectacle, pun intended. You know, when the Chicago Blackhawks score a goal, I celebrate. When the Los Angeles Kings score a goal or the Boston Bruins score a goal, it is absolutely demoralizing. Now, I want you to understand that what we're talking about here is not a silly hockey game, and that took a lot of pain and guts to say silly about hockey, but it's not a silly hockey game, but what we're talking about is the cosmic existential fate of human beings. This is a big deal. And and it's in this passage of these five observations of God's power, purpose, and sacrifice that remind me of something that John Ortberg said just recently. What are the odds that something started by one Jewish rabbi and a handful of confused disciples would still be around 2,000 years later? You ever think about that? It's pretty amazing. Nothing like it. Nothing like it in the history of the world. 